Uh, let's ask God now to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray now that you, we would hear you speak to us. And we pray that your word, uh, your living word, would do a good work in our lives. That it would help us to trust Jesus for salvation. And that we would know its teaching, rebuke, correction and training uh, so that we can live the lives of Jesus' followers, lives rich in doing good. And help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, well, tonight's been a night of joy, uh, but uh, for many of us, uh, last week was really quite a sobering week, wasn't it? As the Christchurch massacre continued to dominate our news. Uh, whether it was searching out the background of the murderer or thinking about the role of social media or changing New Zealand gun laws, or at the end of the week, footage of the funerals of those who are gathered peaceably to worship. And during uh, this week, I received an email from one of our denominations committees, the Church and Nation Committee, that read like this. Following last Friday's mass shootings in two Christchurch mosques, the Victorian Council of Churches Emergency Min Emergencies Ministry has circulated its disaster tip sheet dealing with the threat of active armed offenders in houses of worship. The tip sheet provides information and advice on prevention, proper conduct during an active shooter crisis and where to seek further information and help. Uh, that email was inviting me to think about what I should do, what we should do, if a similar incident happened amongst us. And of course, Session will consider the details of their advice. But for me, this email to think about a similar incident happening here raised a more pressing question to ask of myself and of you. If, God forbid, your life were to be suddenly taken away from you as you went about your normal routine, like coming to church, would you be confident about what would happen to you when you died? Can you be ready to die at any time because you know Jesus has given you a sure hope? Now that's a big, a very personal question, isn't it? And you might have already asked yourself that when you heard what happened in Christchurch. Am I, are you, ready to die at any time because we have a sure hope in Jesus? That was the first question the events in Christchurch raised for me. But those events also raise another question. We've seen in response a great and appropriate emphasis on recognising our common humanity and a determination to resist the creation and fostering of division in our community. Yet what people, what you and I believe about God does divide our community. In particular, the Christian belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that God is one yet three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, does divide us from Muslim believers. Muslims reckon that belief to be shirk, associating partners with God by ascribing divinity to Jesus, and that the Christian belief in the Trinity, 
is actually worshipping three gods. Now both those things are seen as being in direct opposition to the Muslim belief in the unity of God, expressed, say, in Shura 112. Allah is one, the eternal God. He begot none, or was he begotten? None is equal to him. And in the Quran, the deity of Jesus is explicitly rejected. So that's from Shura 5. Unbelievers are those that say Allah, that is, God is the Messiah, the son of Mary. For the Messiah himself said, Children of Israel serve Allah, my Lord and your Lord. He that worships other gods besides Allah shall be forbidden paradise and shall be cast into the fire of hell. Unbelievers are those that say Allah is one of three. There is but one God. The Messiah, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle and other apostles passed away before him. Belief in the deity of Jesus and in God as Jesus has made him known, one God to be confessed as Father, Son and Spirit divides. So should we feel uncomfortable about maintaining our distinctive belief about Jesus that he is God's Son come amongst us? For communal harmony, should we fall silent about these beliefs, minimise their place in our lives and confession? That was the second question Christ Church raised for me. Is it time to backpedal on our belief that Jesus is God, God the Son? Is it really so important as to risk fostering division in our community? Two big questions raised by what we've seen in Christchurch. Firstly, am I, are you, ready to die at any time because we can have a sure hope in Jesus? Secondly, is it time to backpedal on our belief that Jesus is God, God the Son? And though the first question might seem personal and the second more abstract theological, the answers to those questions can't be separated. For as we'll see in John 10, the passage you heard tonight, confidence in God's salvation, having a sure hope, depends on Jesus being who he says he is, God's Son, one with the Father. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. A time has passed since the conversation we read about in chapters 7 to 9. It's now December, a couple of months later, the Feast of Dedication, Anaka, the feast that remembered the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus in 164 BC. But the uncertainty and division amongst the Jews about Jesus who he is and how they should respond to him continues. They demand certainty. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that's probably a hostile question seeking to trap Jesus in his words. For the Christ, the term used by the Jews for God's promised king who would bring the end time rule of God was a term full of political and military associations. In the minds of the people, this promised anointed ruler would not just be a descendant of David, but be another David, a second David, a warrior, a conqueror, a king. 
and so a challenge to both the Roman invaders and the local powers. Jesus has avoided using that term of himself, even though, as we saw in John 7, it's been on the people's lips when they've been thinking about him. Oh, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs? This is the Christ. Is the Christ to come? And without using the term, Jesus replies to his questioners that the answer to their question has been plain in both what he has said and done. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I told you. Jesus has said so much that has identified himself as that promised ruler, the Christ to come. Just now in chapter 10, he has said that he is God's good shepherd and the prophet Ezekiel was clear that God would put his servant David as the shepherd of his people in the last days. Jesus has spoken repeatedly of himself as the son, which for Jewish hearers would bring to mind Psalm 2, a psalm that spoke of the Christ and his rule over the nations. He had described himself as the Son of Man, one to whom the kingdom would be given, as was expected of the Christ. While not using the word, Jesus had told them, but they didn't want to believe. And the works that he had done in his Father's name, that is, with the authority and power of God, showed that he was sent from God, the one who would bring the promised end-time rule of God, that time of wholeness and holiness of new creation, of the rule of the Christ. <coughs> Think what Jesus has done. He's turned water into wine, cleansed the temple, healed with a word at a distance, healed a man paralysed for 38 years, given sight to a man born blind. All signs of the age to come, the coming of the Christ. And in feeding the 5,000, the crowd had recognised one whom they thought should rule be king amongst them. So there was no shortage of evidence, no reason not to identify Jesus as the Christ if his questioners considered what Jesus had said and done. There was no cause for continuing doubt and confusion. But the problem was not the evidence, but them. They did not believe because they didn't want to believe. They did not believe, said Jesus, because you are not among or of my sheep. That's the reason for their unbelief. So what characterises Jesus' sheep? Three things. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Jesus' sheep listen to Jesus. They hearken, they heed, they respond. They know Jesus' voice is the voice of the good shepherd, the promised of God's shepherd, who will give them life. And they are known by Jesus. He accepts them as his own. He knows them by name individually. And they follow their shepherd. They trust him, are guided by him, guided by his voice, his word. And Jesus then goes on to let his questions know how grievous it is that they are not his sheep, how grievous it is that they are not believing his word by telling them why being one of his flock matters. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Jesus had spoken earlier in chapter 10 about giving his sheep abundant life, laying down his life for their life. Here he makes it clear what that life he gives his sheep, his followers, is. It is eternal life, that is, the life of the age to come, starting now and going on into that age. They, those who hear his voice, believe his words and follow him, he says, will never perish. So this life is deathless life, no longer plagued by the mortality of this age, the death of our bodies we know in this life. It's the life of the new creation, the new heaven and earth where death is no more. And this gift given to those who listen to Jesus and follow him says Jesus is secure. No one will snatch them from his hand. No thief, no false shepherd, no wolf. No false teacher, no proud religious leader, no earthly power, no human violence, not the devil himself, not even death. Where we know as followers of Jesus our own frailty, our capacity to be deceived and seduced by flattery, our own weakness and little faith, our fear of loss or suffering. This is a great promise. Jesus says we can put confidence wholly in him to keep us forever as we are his sheep. Listening to him, following him, we can be sure of life. But how can Jesus be so sure, so confident of his power to keep his sheep? Well, it's because he is not working on his own. Verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus has not come to possess his sheep independent of the Father. They are God's gift to him, given to him. He has told us in John 6 that he might not lose any of them. John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I'll never cast out, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The Father has given the sheep to Jesus for the very purpose that Jesus saved them and saved them completely. The Father is right behind Jesus in keeping his people secure. No one will pluck them from the Father's hand, for no one is greater than the Father. Now think for a minute about what that means. I mean, we all say in our heads, oh yes, the Creator God, he's greater than all. But think now of what it means if the great Creator God is committed to saving you, if he is graciously for you. If that's the case, can a terror attack, a moment of proud wickedness, separate you from your Saviour and the life he gives, if the Almighty God keeps you? Would that proud evil frustrate your God's will for you or deny his promise? Well, no. What then of a moment's inattention on the road or a diagnosis of cancer? Well, won't all those things just serve the purposes of the Almighty God for his people? 
What of the torment of bullying co-workers, the apathy of chronic illness, determined rejection by your parents or by your husband or wife because of your faith? What of the devil's deceit and malice that spreads lies through a culture, makes a society hostile to the gospel or raises up false teaching in the church? Can any of these pluck you from the Father's hand, prevent him fulfilling his purpose, that Jesus gives his sheep eternal life? Think of who God is. He's the one who exposes lies, turns people's malice back on themselves. He's the one whom the nations serve and they do his will. He brings what is from nothing. He gives life to the dead. He does whatever pleases him and knows no limits on his power. So no one and nothing can take from the Father those whom he is determined to keep. And that is you if you are Jesus' sheep, listening to him and following him. And so if you're a believer, here is a promise to cling to, a promise on which you can cry out to God in your weakness and need in your confusion and perplexity, a promise that allows you to face whatever comes with confidence and courage. No one will pluck you from the Father's hand. But how does Jesus know this? How does he know that his sheep are given to him by his father and that he and the father are both determined to keep them. Well, it's because of his relationship with the father. Because, as he says, I and the father are one. Now, that plainly doesn't mean that Jesus and the father, the son and the father, are identical. The son is not the father and the father is not the son. The foundation of that statement is that the father and the son are and can be distinguished from each other as Jesus does constantly. Even saying verse 36, speaking of himself as the one consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. <coughs> the Father and the Son are distinguished from each other. So in what sense are the Father and the Son one? Well, they're one in purpose. What the Father wills, especially for his people, the Son wills. They're one in work. What the Father does, the Son does, whether in judging or in giving life. They're one in word. The word the Son, Jesus, speaks is the word the Father has given him. They're one in power, one in love. While the Father and the Son are distinguishable, they are inseparable. So you can't drive a wedge between the Son and the Father. Jesus is not going to promise something and then have the Father contradicted. The Son's purpose in giving eternal life to his sheep, those who hear his voice and follow him, believers in the crucified and risen Jesus, is the Father's purpose. And it is the Son's being one with the Father that guarantees the salvation of Jesus' people, for no one is greater than the Father. While Jesus' confidence in his power to save, his clear statement of his relationship to the Father God just infuriates his hearers. They want him dead and are going to form a lynch mob to make it happen. They pick up stones to stone him. 
But Jesus takes them on. In his mercy to them, he challenges their vigilante action. He points them, verse 32, to the evidence that they should change their minds. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? But they make it clear that it's not what Jesus is doing, apart from the fact that he does it on the Sabbath from time to time, that they object to. What they object to is what he is saying, and particularly what he is saying about himself. Verse 33, you being a man, make yourself God. That's right. By your claim in chapter 5 that God is your father, by your claim that you are before Abraham, by your claim that you are one with the Father. The issue is what Jesus is saying. In particular, it is what Jesus is saying about himself. And it's not generally what he's saying, it's his claim that he is one with the Father. You see, they're not objecting to Jesus being a spirit-filled man. They're not objecting to Jesus being an enlightened man. They're not objecting to Jesus being a man God uses and then exalts. They are objecting to Jesus being a man who claims to be God, which makes Jesus' response to them even more interesting. You notice that he doesn't say, oh, no, you've got it all wrong. How could you think that I, a mere mortal, could claim to be God? He could have said that. He could have clarified that he was just a human servant of God and a good man who was only a man would have done that. And this is a serious discussion, isn't it? Because his life is on the line. But he doesn't say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Instead, he refers them to what he calls your law. Is it not written in your law? Now, he calls it your law, not because it's something they've made up, but because the scriptures of the Old Testament here referred to by the name of the major part, the law, is what they revere, spend their lives studying and claim as their authority. So he says, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus refers them to Psalm 82, a psalm that starts by saying, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This was a psalm that some of the rabbis of the day taught was speaking of Israel of the wilderness generation, of whom God had said, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel, who had been in God's presence in his council at Sinai, a psalm in a sense that rebukes their failing to govern their life by God's law. Now both Jesus and his audience agreed this psalm was the word of God. And so Jesus turns to the language of this psalm to give his audience another opportunity to pause and engage with what he's doing. In this psalm, God, the ultimate author of scripture, which is the word of God, calls mortal people, you see that, verse 7, like men you shall die, calls mortal people gods. And so says Jesus, 
We know the scripture can't be broken, that is, that it will never prove false, be set aside, annulled, or lie. We know scripture cannot be broken. So if God, who is the author of scripture, can call these mortal people gods, why do you stumble at me? Someone whom the Father consecrated, that is, sanctified, set apart for himself to do his work in the world and sent into the world, why do you stumble at me saying, I am the Son of God? If God legitimates the recipients of his word being called gods, how can it be blasphemy for the one who brings the word to call himself Son of God? It's an argument from the lesser, the description of the recipients of revelation, the description of those who failed in their obedience to God, an argument from the lesser to the greater, the description of the bringer of revelation, the one who perfectly does God's will. And it's an argument that has all its force on their common acceptance of the scriptures, the written word, as the word of God. It's saying God legitimates this way of speaking. Now it's not meant to be a conclusive proof of Jesus' identity. Rather it's meant to give them space to consider the whole picture of Jesus' action and teaching. And so Jesus directs them again in verse 37 to what they've witnessed, what they witnessed themselves in his ministry. But while it's not a conclusive proof for them, it is clear evidence for us of what Jesus thinks of himself. Here he is with his life at stake, given an opportunity to deny that he is God, and he does not take it. Rather, he justifies the way he speaks of himself. He seeks to engage them with that and reinforces in verse 38 what he has said of his relationship with the Father. But if I do them, that is the works of my Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Believe the works, he says, so you'll know and start to understand the truth about me. And what's that truth? The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now this is not a way to escape the lynch mob, but it is a way to help us, to help us understand Jesus' relation to the Father, help us understand how the Father and the Son can be one in purpose, actions and word, one in everything, including the things that God alone does, like creating, judging, raising the dead, saving his people, words that help us understand how Jesus can do the work of God, speak the word of God without being a second God, a rival, a competing God. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is saying not only are they inseparable, they are indivisible while still being distinguished as father and son. So if you come to Jesus, says Jesus, you will find the Father. And if you come to the Father truly, you will find the Son. But father and son are still distinct. They are not interchangeable. Now there is a lot to think about here. And this statement of Jesus, which is repeated in John 14, is actually the basis for what's called in Trinitarian theology. And let me say, if you are a believer in Jesus, 
whether you don't like it or not, you are committed to Trinitarian theology, confessing God as Father, Son and Spirit. This statement of Jesus is the basis for what's called, and if you're a collector of terms, here's one, the mutual co-inheritance of the persons of the, the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit, three persons, one God. Now there is a lot to think about when we come to thinking about our God. But that should not surprise you or discourage you, should it? Because God is so much bigger than us and so different from us. He is spirit with none of our limits, almighty and eternal. But God himself has given us a way of thinking about the Father being in the Son and the Son being a Father. And he did that right back in John 1 the start of the gospel where he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now you might find this a bit abstract, but just think for a minute of your words. You have a lot of them. You use them every day, so give a bit of thought to them. Right? You are in your word. That's right. The force and value of your word and especially of your promises is that it comes as a communication from you and it only has power. That power, in a sense, to commit the future as you are in your word, inseparable from it. Oh, and your word is in you. That's right. It is how you make yourself known to yourself. You can't think of yourself without words. Your word is in you. Now, of course, any illustration from human life will always be limited, but it's enough in a sense to get you thinking, isn't it? Because what is a limited truth for us is fully true beyond our imagining for God. And please don't be like those people who hear a phrase and if they don't get it immediately, they just dismiss it and think, oh, can't be anything there. God is so much greater than you. Jesus said the Father is in the Son and the Son's in the Father. He is inviting you to think about him, to think about the true and living God. And it's actually wonderful that the Father and the Son are one, that the Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father. See, that means the words of the Son are the words of the Father, the words of God, even the words he speaks about himself. And for those who have just heard the promise of the Son, that he gives his followers eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand, it is so good to know that this promise is guaranteed by the Almighty Creator God, Father and Son, that Jesus' person, his being one with the Father, guarantees the truth of Jesus' word. And we need to know that for such a promise, well, the only guarantee possible is that it comes from the living God, for no other God can make such a promise. For no other, sorry, than God can make such a promise, can give eternal life. Oh, and the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father means that the work of the Son is the work of the Father. Now think of the wonder of that as you come to this Easter, as you remember Jesus, the Son, going to the cross to die for you. 
That is the work of the Father and the Son. Oh, the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father means we know God in truth in knowing his Son through his word. That means we're not left in the dark about God. As Jesus has said, he who has seen him has seen the Father. The Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father means that the God we know in Jesus, we know as a gracious God, a God who's taken the initiative to save. The Father has sent the Son. He has given the Son for undeserving people. And the Son has given himself to the Father's will to save in that work freely out of love of the Father. And the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father means we know a faithful God. For God over and over again in the Old Testament, you heard just one example in Isaiah 35, promised that he would come, God himself would come and save his people. And with the Father being in the Son and the Son in the Father, he has. You see, the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father means that ours is not a self-help religion for people who are able. It is rescue. It is life from the dead. It is sight for the blind. It is liberation for the captives. It is the work of God doing what God alone can do by the coming of the living God for weak and sinful people. Jesus being one with the Father because the Father is in him and he in the Father means we know in the death of the Son the love of God, Father, Son and Spirit, not as a maybe, not as a nice thought, but flesh and blood dying to save love, effective, faithful, eternal love. But Jesus being with the one with the Father, because the Father's in him and he is in the Father, also means there will be a continuing division in our community. Jesus was offering his hearers, those who were still not his sheep, the opportunity to change. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, he said to them. He's actually offering you still tonight, if you do not yet believe, an opportunity to change. Don't stumble at words. Step back. Consider, he says, all that I have done. Consider my dying and my rising and come to belief and know. But his, his insistence on being true to who he is, in teaching his relationship with the Father, not backing down from it one iota, only inflamed his first hearers and they sought to arrest him. Now that response is just our race's age-old opposition to the true God, a God who is so much greater than us, who shows just by his being that our pretension to be God and so claiming the right to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, that that pretension is a lie. But we love as a race that lie. It's dear to us. We find it hard to give up. We are addicted, enslaved to running our own lives our own way. And so Jesus, being one with the Father, guarantees the hostility of the world forever. You see, they wanted a political and military Christ, but God sent them the Son, 
who was so weak that they thought that they could kill him. And yet in that weakness showed the might of God's power and wisdom. Our world, maybe even you, thinks that at the very least a saviour should have the trappings of power that we recognise. Oh, at least show in some way that he needs us or our approval, our consent, our work and not hang on a cross alone, despised and rejected. But of course the Saviour doesn't need us. The Saviour just needs to be the Son, God with us. And he will save by doing the Father's will, being one with him in purpose, word and deed. He will save alone, save through that murderous opposition, which is opposition to God, save through that murderous opposition getting its way, and in saving there alone, God, Father, Son and Spirit will get all the glory. There will be eternal opposition to the Son being one with the Father. But some will believe, as we see in verses 41, believe because of the word. Hear the word of God's prophet John, believe without a sign. And so where the gospel of the Son goes into the world, the word of the Son that says Jesus is God coming to save, the eternal word become flesh, will always create division. As he calls his sheep to himself, those who hear and follow him and confess that he is the Son of God. That inevitable division should not make us hesitate to declare that Jesus is the Son. For only God can save from the judgment of God and only God can give eternal life. For only God has life in himself. And it's only as we're convicted that Jesus is the Son of God, one with the Father, that we, if we believe, can live and die at whatever time and in whatever way God calls us home, live and die with the confidence of a sure hope, the confidence that the Word of God, the promise of the never-lying almighty God to always keep Jesus' people and give them eternal life, deserves. See, Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God not because it is a human dogma, but because it is taught by Jesus. We believe that God is Father, Son and Spirit because that is God revealed by Jesus the Son. And this is the confession to which we must hold firm, whether it's in favour or out of favour. This is the confession which we must share to honour our saving God and to bring others to know the grace and love of the God who comes to save, the God who can be known. And it is the confession of Jesus' sheep. That is, those who will follow him in loving the world, loving even their enemies by offering them life in knowing the Father and the Son. You see, that Jesus is one with the Father because he is God from God, is not a cause for embarrassed silence. It is a cause for joyous alleluias. You see, the living God has rent the heavens and come down to save his people as he said he would and as he alone 
could. And isn't that good? That Jesus is one with the Father and the Father is in him and he is in the Father and the Father and the Son are committed to save forever Jesus' people and no one will pluck us from his hand. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray in your mercy that we would be Jesus' sheep, that we would hear his voice and that we would follow him, that we would be led by his word to abundant life, to eternal life. And gracious God, we pray that we would have the confidence in Jesus and his promise that he deserves. And so follow him and confess him always with joy. And we pray, gracious Father, that as you sent the Son into the world to be the Saviour of the world, we would share that truth, confess that Jesus is your Son, come to save, to save all who will turn and trust him, so that others might find this life this secure life, this eternal life. Others might find this life in following Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.